you would please take the word of the Lord and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Can you believe it? And if you look at your back of your bulletins, you'll see the outline, and he starts it right off with seven points. And as usual, I will not touch on any of them today. <laughs> what a deal. What a deal. Hank Smith made a comment when I was uh, back, we were together. He says, uh, When are you going to finish up 1 Corinthians? I said, you're not going to believe it, Hank, I did. Really? When? A week ago. <laughs> oh. So what are you going to do now? Retire. <laughs> we'll focus on the first 11 verses and have a word of prayer. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is in abundance through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not know, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within us, within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and He will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Father, help us to have ears to hear. Help us to rejoice at this text. Help us to rejoice at this letter and the passion in the person of the Apostle Paul as his love for this group of believers in Corinth have echoed through the ages. May that same passion, and may that same fire that Paul had, that same love that overwhelmed him and consumed him, may that be what we are known of. Help us, Father, to have ears to hear. Help us to have eyes to see. And help the words of our mouth, the meditations of our soul, be you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. This is an amazing letter. Um, I shared with you eight years ago when I started 1 Corinthians, the reason that I was doing 1 Corinthians was to set the stage for this letter. Uh, this letter has um, been awesome in my life. It has helped me a lot, and I believe uh, with very little um, struggle in this text, you shall grow in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When I look at 
1 Corinthians, I look at it as a whole of dealing with personal holiness. The wonderful thing about 1 Corinthians is this. It deals with the individual. Okay, You cannot read 1 Corinthians and have it not pierce you, have it not comfort you, have it not encourage you, Okay, and definitely grow you, and yet it is not a doctrinal book. It is a very personal book. But he deals with this issue in 1 Corinthians of, and, and you could just basically take 1 Corinthians and just lay it out and says, how's your pride doing? I mean, that's, that's what 1 Corinthians, all of their issues is based on pride. And if you're really honest with yourself, you get yourself into trouble when? You let your pride creep in and take a little hold and you'll find out that pride doesn't take a little hold. It grabs a lot. But then after you deal with that first Corinthian letter, you move into second Corinthians and you start dealing with ministry. What is ministry? I mean, you know, we volunteer for things, we do things, we attend Bible studies, we do this, we do that. You know, I'm going to try to give for Emmanuel's child or I'm going to, you know, do something with the grand people and, you know, pack up little presents and duct tape some, you know, shoe boxes or whatever it is you're going to do. But what is ministry? You know, and we dealt with that in depth. But what you will find in ministry as you move in, is that it will be a conflict. It will be a conflict. This letter, 2 Corinthians, is probably Paul's least systematic um, doctrinal letter that he writes, except for possibly Philemon. Okay? Um, this is one of his most personal letters. Uh, you're going to see things in this text that will absolutely freak you out. I mean, um, what has happened is the culture had corrupted the church in Corinth and they were starting to tolerate things that they shouldn't have tolerated. And when that creeps in, then you become susceptible, the congregation becomes susceptible to false teachers. And you will find that in this text, Paul has to defend his apostleship. Have you thought about that? The Apostle Paul having to defend the church that he planted by the grace of God on his calling? That's crazy. He was he takes a quick trip back. He's in Ephesus and he goes back because of his concern for these people. And while he's there, the false teachers stand up and accuse him of selling a doctrine of grace for sexual favor. And that didn't bother him. What bothered him is no one defended him. And yet he never stopped loving them. First Corinthians was written from the city of Ephesus. Okay. Um, second Corinthians is written after he has escaped Ephesus in the midst of a riot. He thought he was going to die and all those that he was ministering with in the church in Ephesus, he thought were already dead. But he does manage to run into Titus in Macedonia. And he finds out what happened to the believers in Ephesus. But he also finds out what's going on in Corinth. Don't you find that fascinating? To get run out of town in a riot... And yet his concern was for these believers in Corinth. The city, Corinth, is in the southwestern end of Greece. It's about 45 miles west of Athens. It's in the Roman province known as Achaia. Um, the city sits on a plateau, a little high spot. And then it drops down and there's a little four mile wide isthmus. It's not a peninsula, it's an isthmus. All right? And on one side of the isthmus is the Saronic Gulf. On the other side is the Gulf of Corinth. If you're shipping stuff out of Italy 
or out of the underbelly of Europe, you can either go to the Isthmus, and at the time of the writing of the New Testament, you would pay to have your cargo unloaded and hauled over the Isthmus with your ship and then set in the Gulf of Corinth and go on your way. Or you could take a 250-mile trip around the Horn. So this little city was quite an industrious place. Nero actually started digging a canal through this isthmus, but through much complications and much problems, it wasn't finished until the 19th century. Okay? So what happens when you dig a canal with a spoon? <laughs> All right, but it was finally finished. It was started by Nero and finally completed. Um, the city is noted for its immoral corruption. That sounded good, didn't it? Took me forever to come. How am I going to say this? Okay, it was immoral even by pagan standards. Okay, if you were sexually active, do you understand what I'm trying to get at here? Promiscuous. It was common to be called, they called that Corinthianizing. It was an awful place. Remember in our first letter where there was a man had his father's wife? Uh, that literally is almost a form of incest. It would have been his stepmother. Okay? And he says even the pagans think that's wrong. And so you see stuff like that. As most Greek cities, it had an Acropolis. An Acropolis literally means a high city. And it was the high place. It was backed by a great cliff. And it was a place that you could go for defense or, which was very common, worship. All right. On the Acropolis, the high place of Corinth, was the temple of Aphrodites. Aphrodites is the goddess of love. And in this temple, they estimate between one and 2,000 priestesses served there, meaning that they had between one and 2,000 prostitutes that would bring money into the temple by selling their wares. And every night, they would go forth in the city of Corinth to the men and uh, raise money for the temple. This church was founded by the Apostle Paul. I've watched people and they argue over who wrote this letter. And my response is always the same. Have you read it? <laughs> Well, yeah, but we think it says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth. I wonder who wrote it. I, I, I cannot believe that we debate this stuff. I'm sitting there going, what? Well, we're not sure. Oh. Okay, how can you not be sure? It is obvious that the writing of this letter, Timothy has hooked up with him. Remember, the riot had run him out of Ephesus. He had gone to Troas. He was so disturbed about what has happened that God opened the door for the gospel in Troas, and yet he had no peace in his spirit, and he went on to Macedonia. Now you ever think about that? The Apostle Paul not walking through a God-opened door? That riot had an impact on him. The church in Corinth was founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary trip. He did it like he always did. Anytime you had 20 Jewish families, you could have a synagogue. And he, the city in Corinth was a very large metropolis. It was a very industrious place. And guess what? He'd gone to the synagogue. He'd run into some like-minded people who did the same trade as his. As a, as a sower, he was a tanner. He worked leather. Run into Priscilla and Aquila. 
Okay. While he was there in Corinth, he had sent Silas and Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out if they had burned the church down there and killed everybody. They'd come back with a report the church in Thessalonica was doing okay. So you had all of them there. And what was really cool is he managed to win the leader of the synagogue, a guy named Crispus, and his whole family to Christ. So, needless to say, the synagogue, the Jewish people in Corinth did not like Paul. He was in Corinth for about a year and a half. Acts 18.11 tells us that. And you know what? The, the problem with this little church was it, had a, it just couldn't break the culture. It, it couldn't break the worldliness that it was in. What you have is people who are getting saved, coming to church, but they're kind of set in their ways. And they're trying to bring the ways of the world and blend it with Christianity and make it work better. Oh, sounds like Castle Rock. Other than the fact you would look a long time to find an isthmus in Castle Rock. Okay, I mean, even if Plum Creek flooded up, you ain't going to get you an isthmus. I just like saying that word. It's just kind of, it's an isthmus. What is that? Like a finger? Okay. All right, now I'm going to set about as best I can right now to just confuse everybody. Okay, so hang on. This is going to be a blast. Um, 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter. Okay, we have a letter that has never been found that was the first correspondence to the church in Corinth. Okay, you find that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. You can go look this up later. Okay, so, but 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter. Okay, um, and then there is a third letter referred to as the severe letter. All right, we don't have it either. All right, but we do have a letter that we call 2 Corinthians, which is actually the fourth letter. So, did I get you confused yet? All right. It, both letters are written to confront. I mean, if you look at, remember, the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians was to confront them. I mean, he was pulling no punches. You guys had personality cults. You guys are running around saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. I'm of Peter in the Jewish line of this thing. Uh, you have people who are taking sides. You have immorality. Uh, you have this man who has taken his father's wife. Uh, you have all of this going on. It isn't until chapter 7 that he deals with some questions that they ask. And what had happened between the severe letter and what you know as 2 Corinthians is false teachers have started getting a grip. Chapter 2, verse 1, But I was determined this of my own sake, that I would not come to you with sorrow again. So he had left Ephesus for a short time to confront this Leadership that was in error. And it was evidently extraordinarily painful. He had left Ephesus because of a riot. If you remember the conclusion of First Thessalonians or First Corinthians, we were dealing with I'm going hoping to get there in the fall. If I can get there in the fall, I'll winter over with you. When this riot had broken out in Ephesus, he finally ran into Titus in, uh, in Macedonia. Could have been in Philippi. Could have been in Thessalonica. Could have been in Berea. But that's where he wrote this letter that you know as 2 Corinthians, which is actually 4 Corinthians. Okay. This was a troubled church. This church just could not break its ties with worldliness. But you know what I've learned? 
this isn't new. It isn't new at all. This struggling with trials and temptations goes back a ways. I found it in the oldest book of the Bible. The book of Job. Job has a friend, Eliphaz, chapter 5, verse 7. He says, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Anybody want to argue with that? <laughs> Anybody want to deny that? As sparks fly up. You know what that's saying, right? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Listen, there is difficulty in every one of our lives because we are in a fallen world and man is born into trouble. I don't care who you are this day. Job echoed it in chapter 14. Verse 1 says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Anybody want to argue about that? That's the oldest book in the Bible. Listen, life is full of trouble. Struggles. Problems. Hurt. Pain. Disappointment. Despair. Unfulfillment. Anybody want to deny that? You know what? You can take the kids in this room. Well, except for maybe the twins. No, they'd agree. I've had trouble. I've had despair. I've had disappointment. And you take anybody in this room and they will jump on that and say, yep. Yep. And you know what? If you're really honest, now you don't have to agree with this. Maybe you just don't do it. But there's honestly, does it times feel like God just isn't there? I have a little statement that I use like with Matt and Stephanie and some of the people that, you know, when we're working together, you know, we pray about something. They say, well, did you get an answer? And I said, yeah, crickets. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and then I, I will tell you, and I believe this, that every prayer that is ever offered by a Christian is instantaneously answered. We struggle with what is the answer. Is it yes? Is it no? Is it Wait. But they're all answered. Okay, and there's times you're sitting there going, I'm thinking he ain't listening. But you know, that's not new either. The psalmist, you know the book of Psalms is a book of praises. Did you know that? That's, that's what the book was written for. Praises to God. But there's some fascinating Psalms in there. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? an interesting comment from a book of praises. Where are you? Why do you hide? And if you're honest, the whole 10th chapter is dealing with that whole topic. I've cried out and you ain't answering. I thought, well, that's kind of odd. Then I found it in uh, Psalm 88. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. My soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. And the guy right there is not having a good time. I mean, he goes through the whole 88th Psalm and he says, well, what good am I going to be to you if I'm dead? And I mean, this is a book of praises? Where are you? Listen, let's be realistic and let's be honest with each other. Life is full of troubles. And there's times that it feels like God really just doesn't care. By the way, 
He does care. I was just reading this week. Jesus' first miracle. Do you know what it was? Water into wine. Where was he? Wedding at Canaan. His mom was helping with the wedding. And they had run out of wine. And you know what she's wanting Jesus to do? A miracle. And do you know what the basis is? So that the father and the new couple will not be embarrassed. That is not a life and death struggle that you run out of wine at your wedding. And he want Mary comes to the Son of God and says, don't let these people be embarrassed. And she knows he's going to do it because she says to the servants, what? Whatever he says, do. Did you ever think about that? I mean, they ran out of wine. That's amazing to me. And he takes care of it. Why? On the basis of what? I don't want him to be embarrassed. This is newlyweds. Eliphaz knew that the, because that same chapter that I gave you out of chapter 5, he knew what trouble was. Men is born in trouble and he will rise like the sparks rise. In that same chapter, he speaks of God's care and behold how happy because he will deliver us from pain and he will give. When, when we are in pain, God offers relief. When we have wounds, God heals. It doesn't, you know, it's like the, the 23rd Psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay? You know what the problem with that psalm is? You gotta go through the valley. How about I go around the ridge of the valley of the shadow of death? But he says, no, thy rod and thy staff, they, they what? It comforts me. Interesting thought. Listen, I don't, when it comes to trials and tribulation and pain and suffering and wounds and heartache and disappointment, um, do I really have to describe that to you guys? Because if you've gotten through this to this point, and I don't care how old you are, if you've gotten through this point with no pain and suffering and heartache, and then you just, I don't know how you did it. See, the psalmist affirms God will come and save His people no matter how difficult the trouble. All right? And just for your own information, I'll let you check it out. You'll find it in Psalm 22, Psalm 31, Psalm 34, Psalm 39, Psalm 46, Psalm 54, Psalm 71, Psalm 88, 81, 88, Psalm 91, Psalm 107. Do I need to go on? God will take care of His people. He is always faithful. The psalmist says, He has delivered me from all of my troubles. But doesn't it sometimes feel like, where'd you go? Okay, so now the why. Why are we talking about this? And what in the world has this got to do with 2 Corinthians? Let me show you something. As you, many of you would know, I have been reading this letter for a while. As Paul writes this letter, I ask myself, what's he doing? I mean, I see his love and his passion for the church in Corinth. Okay? I see that very clearly. But what is he doing? What's he up to? Look at verse 8. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. I like that word. It's affliction. I had an affliction. 
You know, I got an affliction. I had uh, dropped a uh, board on my big toe, right big toe. And uh, it was such a pleasant thing. Uh, it's one of them when you take your boot off, your sock is soaked in blood, and you're thinking, oh, this is a bummer. You know, it's one of those, that, as a man, a man will do this. If I leave the sock on, I'll never see how bad it is, and it'll be okay. <laughs> well, I was in the middle of a whole bunch of different things, so the next day I got me a sock on, and, and I had my boots on again. And so what I decided I would do, Mr. Brilliant, I should have been a rocket scientist, I'll lean back on the heel of my boot all the time so that my toe doesn't hit the toe. And I wore up this great big blister on my heel. So by the end of the second day, I was sitting there going, yes, I have an affliction. It is called my right foot. Paul says here, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I have a blister on my foot. Now somebody says, says, I have an affliction. And it had come to us in Asia. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. That's what's going on in the Apostle Paul's brain when he's writing this letter. Look at verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we could not trust of ourselves. You know what that says? I'm going to die. But in God, who what? Do you understand what he just said there? He said, I was in an affliction that was so bad that it took the equivalence of resurrection power to get us out of it. That's some serious divine intervention, don't you think? They had escaped a riot. Now they were scattered. Timothy and Silas, and Titus and Paul, whoever else was there working with them in Ephesus. The coppersmith was mad because Paul was turning the people from idols and he was making a kill and making idols and the people were stopping to buy in his idols. And think about it. I remember some guys that years and years ago that were coal miners back in uh, Kentucky and they went on strike. It was a non-union strike. It was a what they call a wildcat strike. And the coal company decided, you know what? We're going to bring the coal out that we have on reserve and we'll ship it to market so we can keep cash flow coming into the company. Well, them crazy coal miners got up on the hills of Kentucky and started shooting at the semis, shooting the engines out of them. And I thought, man. And then the governor of Kentucky says, well, we can stop this. And he brings out the National Guard to escort the trucks. Them crazy coal miners started shooting at the National Guard. You mess with a man's money and he will get cranky. Paul had been in the middle of that. The coppersmith in Ephesus was losing money and he blamed Paul and this church. And he stirred up the people and there was a riot and they got out by divine power equal to the resurrection. Paul knows turmoil. Paul knows the suffering of ministry. Verse 10, who delivered us from the great peril of death, who will deliver us. And he, we set our hope. See, Paul is writing this letter and Paul's life is on the line. He can die for what he's doing. You know, when he uses the term affliction, I have an affliction. And I'm sitting there going, I got an affliction on my foot, but it ain't going to take resurrection power to get me better. Flip-flops got me better. (laughs) The beloved apostle writes this, and he has just escaped by the Lord, verse 9, in the deliverance from him. And it was done with the same emphasis that the resurrection of the dead. It takes resurrection power to get us out of this place. Paul knew trouble. If you go over and we'll get it in detail 
in the weeks and months to come, maybe years. Chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. Are we servants of Christ? This is what I'm talking about. This is ministry. Are we servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. Far more labors. Far more imprisonments. Beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times received from the Jew 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. Let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul knew what it was to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood it. And everything he gave you right there is all the physical side of what ministry can bring to bear on you. The man knew pain. The man was intimate with trouble beyond anything we can understand. Paul knew the physical pain of ministering. Look what he says. I mean, here's what he says. Are we not servants of Christ? That's ministry. But... There is something that is more painful than what he just listed. Look at verse 28. Apart from such external things. See, he looked at it. This is the physical side. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me, okay, of concern for all the churches. Something more dangerous, something more painful, something more heart-wrenching, something that wounds more than thieves and false brethren, than being beaten with rods, being whipped, being stoned, being shipwrecked. There's something more painful than that. That word that you see there, Pressure. It means daily pressure. It can be daily suffering. It can be daily tribulation. It can be daily trouble. It's on me. What is it? Concern for the church. Listen. Do you know, or you will know, people inflict much more pains than rocks, than whips, or sticks. Paul knew it. People have the capability to hurt, to wound, to disappoint, and even cause disillusionment. Real trouble, real pressure in life. You know what it is? Deal with the church. Listen, I, you know, as I go through this, and I've been through both letters now, this, this is a high-maintenance bunch. I mean, I don't care how you cut this. There is a tremendous amount of work necessary to keep this group even sort of in line. There's rebellion, disloyalty. People will cause this list. Rebellion, disloyalty, dishonesty, immorality, unfaithfulness, inadequate help, Ignorance, pride. And the thing is, it is at all levels. You can't say, well, the infinite Christ is. No, he's dealing with leaders. He's, his narrow escape from death was one kind of external trouble, but it came and it went. The Corinthian trouble had come and it stayed. 
If you think about it, in the body of Christ, the legitimate church today, what is it? Trouble and it stays. You know how I know? Why are there 54 evangelical churches in Castle Rock? Just a question. I pondered a message. I have listened to some messages that are preached by guys in this town. And you know one of the things that I've learned that they don't do? Their messages will not preach outside of this country. Paul's message would preach to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Assyrians, to the Syrians, to the Egyptians. To the Ethiopian eunuch, same message. And what you hear in the body of Christ today will not preach outside of their four walls. Sometimes it won't even preach out of their area code. Paul writes this letter and he is right smack dab in the middle of trouble. Escaping death. He's been delivered. Why? The same power that raises the dead. Now, I'm sitting here, escape with my life. I'm encouraged that I found Titus. Gee, many crickets, there's two survivors. But I have this concern for the church, the church that he loves. You know what? This first 11 verses here in chapter 1, it's an introduction. And you know what's amazing about this? And we'll get into detail in the weeks to come. You can bet on it. Here's what's amazing about this. In these first 11 verses, there's five different words that describe trouble. Five. And they're all different words, and they're usually translated affliction or trial or tribulation. But do you know that in the same text, there are ten words that describe comfort? Most of the commentaries that I've read on this is dealing with trials and tribulation. You know what? And I go through it and I said, I don't think that's what he's dealing with. I think he's trying to tell these people, where is the comfort? He describes his trouble five different ways. Then ten times he refers to the comfort that he finds in God. He writes this. As he is writing this, he realizes there's trouble. At the same time, there is an experiencing of tremendous comfort. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in the midst of horrific trials and been comforted the whole time you're in it? Normally when we're in trials, what are we focusing on? The affliction. Paul is saying, you know what? I got word back from Titus that some of you guys have straightened it up or following the word of the Lord. See, he feels the trouble because he knows the problems. Read 1 Corinthians. He understands what was going on. The reason he feels the comfort is because he knows that there are some people who have gotten into line with what God is doing. It is easy to get off track by what people ain't doing. I get it. I get people ask me on, 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 have you seen such and such? You know, I haven't seen such and such in a couple of weeks. Well, I haven't seen nobody. I just, well, you ain't been here. That's why. But, uh, <laughs> okay. But, uh, but you see it. You get them. They'll come to you. And I, yeah, I don't care if you see it. You know what? If God lays it on your heart that there's somebody in this body of believers that you haven't seen in a while, you know what you need to do? Call them. <laughs> that ain't hard. Because he hasn't laid it on my heart because if he did, I would have the world's largest phone bill. But he's seen people coming in to the way of God. And yet, he understands you know, he's in a war. But there's some falling in line, some walking in a manner worthy. Things are turning around. When things are turning around, there's comfort. At the same time, he knew the battle isn't over. And that's why he's got 2 Corinthians. 
He knows that the problems are still there. He knows that the immorality is still there. He knows that the corrupt culture is still there. He knows that the demonic assaults are still there. He knows that the false teachers are still there. He knows that the people are following some of the false teachers and they are still there. He knows the rebellion is still there. He knows that the disloyalty to Christ is still there. And yet, he writes aware of these trouble that God provides the comfort. Every time. So that's how he begins this letter. When he begins, you don't feel so much of the trouble as you feel the comfort. Now, if you want to sit and sit there and say, well, look, there's suffering and there's suffering and there's suffering and there's affliction and there's suffering. And you know what? Hang out there. But think about where Paul is when he writes this letter. Paul knows God is there to comfort, to strengthen in all things so that his heart is in the rejoicing mode. Rejoice! Again, I say rejoice. Let your prayers be known to God. You know, go to prayer rejoicing. Most of the time we go to prayer in panic. The world's ending and I'm a part of it. Help! Why aren't you rejoicing? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Look what he said. I want to show you this because verse 3 is so awesome. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you think about that for a second. I've been shipwrecked three times, a day and a night in the deep, beaten with rods by my countrymen. Two times I have been flogged, 39 stripes. I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been danger in the country. I've been danger in the city. They're trying to arrest me. Every time I go to a city and God starts moving, I get arrested and somebody wants to put me in front of a judge. Okay? I just got out of Ephesus where we had this wondrous time of building a church, a foundation, strong foundation, and this clown started a riot and just about killed all of us if God hadn't intervened with divine resurrection power. And, by the way, I'm concerned about all the churches, whether it's in Philippi, Berea, whether it's in Thessalonica, whether it's in Corinth. I'm concerned about, I mean, you let's even look at Asia Minor. I have the whole Galatia region. I have Laodicea, Colossae. Yeah, look at you guys. Blessed be the God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's a praise. It's the term blessed is the word you and I get eulogy from. You know what it means to eulogize somebody, right? They're dead and you lie. <laughs> well, it's true. I went, never mind, that's another story. Do you know that the eulogy, blessed, in the New Testament, is never used but in, of anybody but God. When, if you were to go to a Jewish synagogue, you will find 18 benedictions, all praising God. They eulogize God 18 times. And you will hear a phrase used, Baruch Atah, Baruch Atah, Blessed is God, Baruch Atah. Speak well of God. Listen, it's amazing that this man in the situation he's in right now is not questioning God why he has just escaped death. He's not questioning because this church seems to struggle so greatly. He is saying, I am exalting God that I'm involved. And he has brought me comfort through the midst of all of this. Okay, but he has taken the Baruch Atah and taken it out of the Jewish mindset and he's thrown it headlong into the Christian mindset. Why? Because he says, now it is the Father of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Baruch Atah. Abba. Kyrios. Is a kistos. That's what he's saying. Blessed. Speak well of God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have been to the ringer and I don't care. And I don't care. Paul starts this letter with a heart of joy, a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving, eyeball deep in affliction in ways that you and I can't understand. And he takes comfort in Baruch Atah. How many times do I look at the affliction and not at the Lord who sustains me? Let's pray. Father, thank You for my brother Paul. And Father, I long for that day that I can sit in fellowship with him. Um, hmm. Father, as we move into this new letter, the love of Paul is just so personal, so so massive, and yet in that love, he will rebuke. Father, may we, in whatever trials and tribulation, whatever affliction, whatever sorrow, whatever hurts, whatever wounds we have, Father, may we understand blessed is God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Your ways are not our ways. And yet, Father, You have allowed us the privilege of being a part of Your eternal plan. To Your glory, to Your praise, in Christ's name.